to work with our children on Wednesday nights, Grace Kids. And so, um, so we have an Addison, an Ava, an Ada, an Audra. I mean, like just in those four right there. It's like, it's not a shock that I got your name wrong, Adra. Cause I look at, cause I look at Addison every week and I call her Avi, right? So, um, it's not my fault. It's the parents. The parents, you've named your children. I can't keep track. It's okay. All right. Uh, we have been working our way through the book of Exodus. Uh, and if you are familiar at all with this book in the Bible, it's the second book in the Bible. It's the story of how God rescues his people, the Israelites, out of slavery. And for most of us, probably, uh, maybe culturally, we're familiar with the first part of the story where God sends these plagues against Egypt to rescue his people. And then we're even familiar with kind of the next part of the story, the Ten Commandments. That's something we know. But then, really, that leaves us more than half of the book that when we get to it, we're a little bit like, wait a second, huh? Because the rest of the book, the majority of this book, the rest of it, is is taken up with something called the tabernacle. And it's these very, uh, at least in some places, very exact specifications for how Moses and the Israelites are to build this tent that God is going to live uh, with them in, right? So uh, to put it in modern terms, if all of the people of Israel are living in mobile homes, uh, God is going to have a very special mobile home, right? An extra nice double wide built just for him, okay? Uh, that may be a little bit crass, but just kind of gives you an idea of what's happening uh, when we get to the rest of this. And uh, one of the commentators said something very helpful. When it comes to this part, it's amazing how God teaches us in different ways, right? He teaches us through the narrative, through the history of saving his people. He also teaches us through his law. And then when we come to this part, he teaches us in pictures. Now, I am the rare guy who actually likes to have instructions when it comes time to like putting furniture together and stuff. Like I'm the guy who reads the instructions. Okay. Those are made for me because if I don't, it's going to be put together incorrectly. Right. Um, but I don't, but I don't read like the instructions that just have step by step stuff like put, you know, put this shelf on this shelf and this doing this. Right. I need, I need to see the pictures. And so if the pictures are not helpful, the instructions are not helpful. And so even though this is all written word for us, God is teaching us something here about himself through the picture of the tabernacle, through this, through the imagery that he is about to unveil over the next several chapters. Now, I'm going to read chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. That's where I'll read today. Uh, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. Uh, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the seat in front of you. It should be on page 65. Let's give attention to God's holy word. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution... From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, 
blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, literally a, a holy place, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Let's pray. Father, now as we come to this passage dealing with something that's fairly foreign to us, we just pray for your guiding light. Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, help us to understand what it is you're saying about yourself, what this tabernacle and all of its furniture, all of its different pieces communicate to us about you. We believe, God, that you've given us this word because you love us uh, and because it is beneficial for us. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to understand it, help us to apply it, uh, and don't let us leave here as the same people we were when we came in. Lord, by your transforming grace and power of your Holy Spirit, would you transform us through the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could just see God, if you ever had that thought, uh, maybe uh, I, I would imagine maybe most of us, probably all of us, have wrestled with this idea. If I could just, if I could just see God, if I could just see Him, it would make all the difference in the world. Maybe you've prayed something to to the effect of God. If you're real, would you just show yourself to me? Right, you're. You're not alone in that struggle. In fact, that idea really even captures one of the main issues that we have with religion, even Christianity. It's this issue of God's invisibility. People we can see. The natural world we can see. But God in the supernatural we cannot see. And that's led some people to even kind of give up on the whole idea of religion altogether. In fact, secularists would tell us that religion was originally invented to explain the natural world, right? We needed a name for turbulent seas, unpredictable storms at sea, and so we, we called it Poseidon, right? That there had to be some, uh, that there had to be a God who was in charge of those hurricanes and he was spiteful and mean, right? That's, that's what, you know, in our, in our world, in our, our, a secularist would say, that's where religion came from. It was an explanation for the things that we see, for the things uh, that we can't control. But isn't it interesting that the earliest writings we have of humanity are all religious in nature, that people have always looked at life through a religious lens. Even as technology progressed, Stone Age to Bronze Age, etc., people continued to worship. People continued to have gods and goddesses. And it's really only in our modern era, it's really only in our time, in the past few hundred years, none of us are that old, uh, but it's only really in our modern era that the idea that faith and science are incompatible has even come about. 
that faith and reason can't belong together. That's really, that's really a pretty recent invention. For most of human history, people have looked at life through a religious lens. So what if all those stories of gods and goddesses aren't, weren't invented to make sense of the natural world, but they actually come from somewhere else? What if they're not made up to explain what we see, but they're echoes of a, of a distant past? What if they're, in most cases, distortions? Wrong views of a time when God actually did live with man. When God was visible and not invisible. See, if we're going to understand what God is doing in this thing called the tabernacle, we have to go back. We have to go back to that time when God did, in fact, walk with man, was present with man. Because what we're going to see as we look at the tabernacle and we talk about the place that it has in the Bible, the point is this, living with God is the goal of salvation. In other words, God saves his people so that he can bring his people to himself. As one, as one pastor puts it, God brings us out of slavery to bring us into his presence. That's the entire reason God rescues and redeems his people, so that they will live with him. God brings us out of sin to bring us to himself. That's what the tabernacle is saying, that the whole purpose of salvation, the whole goal is life with God, fellowship with God, God's presence with us. Sorry, I forgot to put the outline in the... All right, you just got to be super... You got to be on it today because I forgot to put the outline in the PowerPoint. My bad. All right. Three things I want you to... Three things we're going to see as we kind of unpack the tabernacle a little bit. First, the tabernacle reminds us of the presence we lost. The tabernacle is a reminder that at one time God was present with us and we lost it. Second, the tabernacle provides a way to approach God's presence. And now that's in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about what that means for us now. So the tabernacle reminds us that we lost God's presence. The tabernacle provides a way to approach God's presence. And then finally, the tabernacle pictures God's presence to come. So it's a reminder It's a way of approach, and it's a picture of the future, okay? So when I say that the tabernacle reminds us of the presence we lost, let's let's start with the purpose of what this tent is. Let's look at chapter 25, verse 8. After Moses kind of, after God details to Moses all the different precious things that, that are to be gathered for the construction of the tabernacle, he gives us the purpose. He tells us in verse 8, He says, let them, the people, make me a sanctuary. Now, in common English usage, uh, think currently a a hot topic issue, right, is this idea of sanctuary cities. We tend to think of a sanctuary as a safe place to go. But that is not what sanctuary means in the Old Testament. It's not what it means in Hebrew. When God says, have them make me a sanctuary, that word means a holy place. A place where God's presence dwells. And because God is there, it makes the place holy. Okay? So, let them make me a holy place 
that I may dwell in their midst. In other words, Moses, I want you to gather all of these precious materials, precious stones, precious metals, precious fabrics, and I want you to make me a place to live. So the very first thing that tells us about God is that He actually wants to live in the middle of His people. And that right there may be a foreign idea to you. You may always have assumed that God is far off and distant. And that in some way God would never, ever, ever want to even draw near to you. That He would not want to be present in the midst of your life because you are too foul, you are too sinful, you are too dirty, your past, etc. And so I want to go ahead and tell you the good news that God does want to be with humans. God wants to draw close to His people. That's why He tells Moses to make this structure. So that He can dwell in their midst. That He can be right there with them. He wants to be present in the neighborhood. God wants to be present in your life. And there was a time when He was. This idea of God dwelling with His people is not a new thing. There was a time when it was the norm, at least according to the Bible. If you go back to Genesis 2, if you were to read that whole chapter, you would read about this luxurious, beautiful creation filled with precious metals, gold, precious stones, onyx, water flowing, trees of every sort that were good for eating from. It's called Eden, and that word Eden even means luxurious. God creates this space in creation, a space wherein He will walk with these new creatures called man. And He creates this garden, and He puts the man and the woman in this garden. And their job is to worship God by working the garden and guarding it. Right? And in the midst of this garden are two trees. One the tree of life, one the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And all is well. This is, this is man with God. This is the presence of God living in the garden with his people. But all does not stay well if you're familiar with the story of the Bible. Adam is told to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's the very thing that Adam does. He rejects God's word and therefore is rejected from God's presence. It is no longer safe for Adam and Eve to stay in the garden. God's presence now is dangerous to them. In fact, a a cherubim, this angelic creature, probably terrifying to behold. Not, not, don't, when I say cherub, don't think like the cute little baby on Valentine's Day cards. That is not a cherub from the Bible. That's from something else. A cherub in the Bible has like four heads. Uh, it's scary, okay? Uh, and this cherub is placed at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword so that man and woman will not eat from the tree of life and be forever doomed to a fallen existence. And so the presence is... Rejected, the presence is lost, and now it's guard, and now it's guarded. Why do I say all that? Why is that even important for this discussion? Because if you really pay close attention to the description of the tabernacle 
and the later temple, they are echoes of the Garden of Eden. There's imagery all over the tabernacle that are meant, that's meant to remind those who saw it about Eden, about the, the temple, uh, about the garden temple. First, the structure and the furniture is all made out of gold and silver and bronze, all these precious metals. The priest's garments have precious stones on them like onyx. Rich colors, special fabrics. This is a royal tent. This is where the king will live, just like he did near the garden. This is where the king will meet with his people. There's going to be a lampstand that sits inside this tent, and it looks like a tree, a tree of light, symbolizing that God gives light and life. There's all these natural images that are worked into the curtains and into the structures. And yes, there are even images of cherubim reminding them that God's presence is now guarded. It is no longer safe. This tabernacle is a copy of the place where man used to live in God's presence. And its purpose is to tell us that God wants to live with his people still. So it's a copy. It's a reminder of what man used to have. And it's a visual picture saying God still wants to live here. He still wants to live with his people. Not, of course, that God could be constrained inside of a tent, but that his presence in a symbolic way would be there. See, after Adam rejected God, God put out his hand and he went to a man named Abraham. And he made several promises to Abraham, but one of those promises was this. I will be your God and the God of your children and they... So, I will be their God and you will be my people. So, God right there makes a promise that he will be with his people. Then he says it again in Exodus 6. In this book, at the very beginning, when Moses goes to get the people out of Egypt, God says, here's what you're going to tell them. I'm coming to get you. I'm going to give my outstretched arm. So, when you hear the Bible talk about God's outstretched arm, I want you to imagine like this ripped muscular arm going in. uh, God is going in to rescue his people with his outstretched arm, right? I'm rescuing you to bring you to myself. He says this in Exodus 6, 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. So, God is saying, I want you to be with me, hence the tabernacle. I've saved you, now I'm going to live with you. Okay? I'm moving into your neighborhood. That takes us to this next point. So, the tabernacle was a reminder, but the tabernacle also provides a way of approach. Because man is now tainted with sin, approaching God becomes dangerous business. And this is because God is holy and man is not. Which means the way is blocked for man. So man cannot approach God. And so what does God do? God makes a way. And this is the, this is the uniform story of the Bible. When there is no way, God makes a way. And that's what he does with this tent, this tabernacle. Let's just, let's just walk through it real quick. These, Moses, God unpacks this from Moses over the next several chapters, but I'm just going to kind of give you a, a bird's eye view of what happened in this Tent in this special uh, kingly tent. The innermost chamber of the tabernacle was called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. It was a perfect cube. And this is the throne room, so to speak. 
this is where God's presence will appear and rest on the Ark of the Covenant. Even if you look at your Bible, you see there, starting in verse 10, there, your Bible probably has a subheading that talks about the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, This Ark, it's this little golden box, and it's actually the centerpiece of the whole thing. All of the tabernacle is constructed to shield this golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. What's going to be put in this box, made of wood, overlaid with pure gold, so the most precious metal, is the law. When God finishes writing the tablets on which the law is, on which the law is written, those tablets will be placed in this golden box and covered. So God's testimony, is what, uh, is what he calls it, is placed in the box. His law, his, re- his revealed will to his people is going to rest in this golden box. On top of this box is a golden cover. And oddly enough, it's called the mercy seat or atonement cover. Remember, remember the cherubim? There's two of them on this box. Again, a reminder that God's presence is guarded. But do you know what is going to happen uh, when... The priests start working. They're gonna, they're gonna, the holy, uh, the, the high priest once a year gets to come into the holy of holies. And when he comes into the holy of holies, he's wearing, he's wearing a special garb. He's wearing a special, uh, breast piece that has all the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. So the, the priest carries all of the people with him into God's presence. And do you know what else he brings with him? Blood. Blood from the sacrifice to sprinkle on the mercy seat so that the people can approach God's presence. And so right here where law and mercy meet is where God meets with his people. The presence of God is revealed at the intersection of law and grace. Right? Uh, Law, God telling the people what is required of them. Mercy, because they cannot keep it and they must have a blood sacrifice to pay for themselves. Hence, it's called the mercy seat or atonement cover. Someone has to pay for the broken law. And so the high priest enters this holy of holies one time a year. Just one time a year. Other than that, the place is off limits. And he does so to atone or pay for the people. Outside, if you go through a curtain from the holy of holies... You go into what's just called the holy place. Not the holy of holies, just the holy. And in here is where you find a golden altar, a golden table with bread on it, and that golden lampstand reminiscent of the tree of life. On the table is is bread for the priests. It's not bread for God, it's bread for the priests because God provides for His people. His people don't provide for Him, He provides for them. And an altar of incense that is constantly burning in worship before the Lord. Only the priest can go in this special place. And then you go through another curtain and you come into the courtyard. Now there's no more gold. Now it's bronze. There's a bronze wash basin where the priests have to clean themselves before they go into the holy place. There's a bronze altar where you as a family would offer your sacrifices before the Lord. And there were several different kinds of sacrifices. This was a very complex system. And this is what it takes for God to be present with His people. The ceremony, the ritual, wearing the right garments, 
presenting the right sacrifices, offered in the right way, only as God commands. It's a very exact, exhausting system. And it happens daily, and weekly, and monthly, and yearly. Again, and again, and again. But as exhausting as that sounds... I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that it is a beautiful thing. Because what it means is that God has moved into our neighborhood. It is a... All of those different sacrifices, all of that metal, all of the the beautiful fabric, all of it is a picture... Are are all these different images meant to say that God, the royal holy king, has moved into mankind's presence... And yet His presence is guarded by having to do all of these different things in the perfect way, in the right way. Don't miss the fact that God has chosen to identify with His people. He's not staying on the mountain. He's coming down the mountain to them. And because they're living in tents, so He too is going to live in a tent. His tent will be at the center of their camp. What we learn when we get to the book of Numbers is that whether they're resting or whether they're on the march, God's tent is always at the center. It's always in the center of the camp. It's always in the center of the march. God will always live in the heart, as it were, of His people. That's what the tabernacle is meant to communicate. So as as tiresome as all the religious stuff sounds... Don't miss the reality that it's meant to convey that God is moving in with His people. He is living in their neighborhood and inviting them to come to His house to share a meal with Him. That's what sacrifices were. They were communion with God. That's what the tabernacle is telling us, a way of approach. And that's what points us to the final point. God is making good on His promise to be their God And he is choosing to humble himself by living in a tent with them. But that's not the last way that God reveals himself. The the tabernacle reminds us of a presence we lost. The tabernacle provides a way of approach. But ultimately, the tabernacle was just a picture. It was a picture of God's presence to come. It foreshadowed something greater. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, it would be page 886. People often... Uh, when, when we struggle with the invisibility of God, sometimes we look backwards at that Old Testament system and maybe we say, gosh, man, if we just had all of that stuff, that would have been amazing to see that temple. It would have been amazing to see this ark or this, this, uh, this tent, this huge tabernacle. Wouldn't that have been awesome? Just something, something our eyes could latch onto. That would really, then we could really engage in worship. But there was something better all along. John chapter 1. 
Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is talking about Jesus the Son. He calls him the Word, but it becomes clear later on that he's talking about Jesus the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Now, skip down to verse 14. John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwell is the Greek word for tabernacle. No longer... No longer is the, is the presence of God protected behind ram skin. No, now it's human skin. God's presence really does move into our neighborhood. He takes on our flesh and He literally tabernacles with us. He dwells with us. What was Mary? What were Mary and Joseph uh, told the name Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, because that is what He has come to be. So no, no longer do law and mercy meet on top of a golden box, kept safe behind a curtain in a temple where no one can see it. No, now law and mercy meet perfectly in a person. The Lord Jesus, who keeps God's law perfectly and then pays for those who break God's law by spilling His own blood. And He's the high priest who bears God's people into the presence of God with His own blood and says, I've paid for these. These are mine. Do you know what happened the moment that Jesus died on the cross? Mark tells us that the curtain of the temple, the curtain that kept that Ark of the Covenant hidden from sight so that no one could enter God's presence. God's presence kept at a difference. Do you know what happened to that curtain when Jesus died, the very moment that He breathed His last breath? That curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Not bottom to top. From top to bottom. And God's presence, the way into God's presence was opened through the flesh of Jesus. The veil was torn in two by the very Son of God Himself. And so now we have access to the Father, not through Bulls and goats and golden tables and bronze altars and a high priest. Now we have access to the Father through Jesus the Son. Listen to what Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says in chapter 9 verses 11 and 12. The author says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then... Through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus 
secures what Adam forfeited. Jesus secures what Adam and Eve gave away and what you and I give away every day. Jesus secures it. And so the tabernacle tells us that God wants to be with us and yet that we have rejected Him. That's what the tabernacle communicates. But it also tells us that He makes a way for us to approach Him. And that way ultimately points to His Son, Jesus. Or as the author of the old hymn said, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. He ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That is the story the tabernacle tells. God moves in and He is satisfied in the righteous sacrifice of Jesus. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory. Great things He has done. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, O God, we praise You for something even as obscure as a golden box in a majestic tent, in a desert, in a time far away from our own. Things, Lord, that even if we saw them would be hard for us to understand. That even in such vivid pictures that are hard for us to grasp, you're communicating to us your grace. That we have something better than the blood of bulls and calves. We have the blood of the righteous one, Jesus. And so we can enter into your presence freely. Even when we are tempted to despair. May we look upward and see him there. Who made an end of all our sin. Oh Lord, may we not approach you on our own terms. To do so would be dangerous and foolish and deadly. Instead, God calls us to see the mercy and grace you have provided for us in Jesus. Lord, if we do not believe, if we have not trusted, received and rested upon Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. God, I pray that we would do that today. There is no other source. There is no other name. There is no other frame in which to trust but Jesus. So may we come to you offering again only Jesus and standing in his stead. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.
refuge and the strength. Therefore, I will not be afraid. Though the mountains give way and fall into the sea. Receive God's blessing from Hebrews chapter 13. And now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may He equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.